that true? Um, isn't it quite like the Italians, this book? I mean, if you were at one of our tables, this would be sort of the dialogue to be there. Yeah, yeah, what are you saying? Get out of here. What is that you're talking about? It'd be this going back and forth, right? And uh, we see in this book of Malachi that um, it's a back and forth. There's discourse going on between God and the people. A lot of it's rhetorical, but God is reflecting what's in their hearts. He's reflecting what they're already thinking and what they've been doing. And we've been looking at this together and uh, just thinking a lot about this. Um, this idea, uh, they use a word in some of the older translations called breaking faith. Breaking faith. And um, I guess uh, an illustration of that, let me just sort of give it, let me just say, if I say the word Carson Wentz, who has a reaction? Now, why is that? It's because Carson Wentz broke faith with the city of Philadelphia. Right? Breaking faith. There was a covenant, so to speak. There was a mutual agreement that he was a number one choice who was going to lead us to the Super Bowl more than once. And we were going to support him as he did his best to do that. And he betrayed us. And he broke faith. Right? And we see this breaking of faith again and again and again. Right? Politicians break faith. We can go through the fact that we can see that happening in families sometimes. Certainly we're going to see today about the marriage covenant and things of that nature. And um, this is what's been happening in Malachi. He's, he started with this big picture of God is a God of covenantal love who loves and has made a covenant to love and to be faithful. And in that covenant agreement, there was supposed to be faithfulness. And what's happened is we've seen the people have fallen into apathy. They've been backsliding. They've been compromising the truth. They've been offering blemished sacrifices. They've been making a mockery of worship. Um, there's a lot of self-centered service to God going on. And, and as Josh was teaching last week about the priests who were breaking faith, the thing is, is that it isn't just impacting one person. This is the thing we're going to see more about today. It's, it's not just that I sin and it impacts me, but it impacts everybody. It impacts the community itself. This is sort of a principle that uh, God uses for his community. And so at the end of last week, here's what we heard in verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have caused many to stumble. Your sin has impacted others. It's impacted the community. Your faithlessness has been something that's impacted the community for things that aren't good. You've been breaking the faith. And here's where we start this morning. And let me read. I'm going to read uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? That word profaning means irreverence, disrespecting, violating, desecrating. Judah has been faithless and an abomination. The word abomination means disgrace or atrocity or horror has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I don't think we're going to get a lot of laughter out of this text. But it is a powerful text that really speaks to us. And it starts off with the word father. This word father here is used in the context of God's covenant. His covenant with Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and Moses, that you are my children. And I'm going to put up a chart just so you guys get an idea especially for our young people, you're going to be answering this question. If you could put that chart up, that'd be great. No? Adriel, the chart? There you go. Thank you. So here's the covenants as we can look at them. Now, the Adam and Eve one, uh, I'm not sure they would say officially this was a covenant, but what he's trying to point out there is that there was the covenant of marriage that was right there in the garden. Uh, then there's the co covenant with Noah, and of course we all know about the rainbow, and um, then Abraham, where he begins moving into bringing a people together, being a father of great nation, this nation being a universal blessing. To Moses, Israelite will be God's precious and chosen people, right? David, on David's descendants, they will sit on the throne of Israel, an ongoing government as we know through Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the representation of the new covenant, this wonderful covenant of grace in which he fulfills all of these promises. But these are sort of an idea of the covenants. And every one of them, when you look at them, is this idea of God choosing a people, a people that would belong to him, the recipients of all his promises, all his love, all his care, all his wisdom. From Genesis 12 throughout the Old Testament, the covenant is covered by his faithfulness, but it's also dependent on the faithfulness of God's people. Here is that mutual agreement. I am your God. I brought you out. You belong to me. I am your father. So this word father is not what people sort of get. A, you hear this, oh, God's the father of everybody. No, God is the creator of everybody but he's the father of those who have been chosen, those who believe, those who are part of the people of the covenant, which today is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And as being that father then, we come under that covenant where he has faithfully continued to keep his promises, but we have been a people who have continually 
remain faithless. We have not kept up our part of the agreement with the Lord. And that's what he's been talking about, right? He's, he's been laying this out. Um, and, and it's interesting that um, what we have here um, is, look at, listen to the words of Isaiah, Exodus, sorry, Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. If you could put that up. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you see the mutual agreement? You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so there's more to it. There's this larger picture that as we are his people, we are going to be people who are impacting the nations as we're in this covenant relationship with God, as we're living out his commands, as we're living out the character of heaven on earth. And the call is to be faithful to each other. And it's based on the covenant and relationship with God and the relationship that God's people have with him. And so we see there's this connection, and we've talked about this a number of times. There's a vertical and there's a horizontal. That vertical is a relationship with God, but that relationship with God impacts all of the relationships that we have horizontally with one another. And it impacts one another, okay? So, you know, we're, we're not living on a separate island, so whatever I do doesn't impact somebody else. It does, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit more this morning. But I love what David Legg says in his message here on Malachi. I have the quote there. No matter how we sin, to whom we sin, there is a corporate responsibility and there is an effect of our personal sin on the whole body of God's people that we are in. Now that's taken over certainly into the New Testament, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, which is all about the body, if you've read that text, right, it talks about the eye, it talks about the leg, it talks about the head, all of them needing one another, and that even the least joint in the body, that which will be, you know, what's that got to do with anything, is very important. And that he moves on in that and says, when one suffers, we all suffer. When one mourns, we all mourn. Because there's an impact. And, and you see this throughout the Old Testament because the people were exiled because of injustice. Now, not everybody was doing injustice, but as people were doing injustice, it impacted the whole community. And that's where he's moving here. So we could think about it this way. It's impossible to offend God and not to offend other brothers and sisters. Because if we're offending God, we are offending one another. In the same way, as it's impossible to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to be loving your neighbor as yourself. They go together. It's a piece. It's a part of who we are living out of this amazing relationship that we have with a covenant God who loves us. So we move from there, and now we're going to get into sort of the heart of where Malachi is going and um, I have this quote by Mortier from his commentary, and I want to start it out by 
by putting this up there and saying, let's listen to this for a second. It's instructive to notice how inevitably a sin forms a cluster of other sins. If the young people are doing their outline, this is an answer for you. That are consequences of the central sin or accompanying that sin or committed to cover up the central sin. Have we not seen that in our own lives? One sin? Say it's pornography. What does that lead to? Does it not lead to other sins? Say it's selfish ambition. Does it not lead to other sins? Do not things accompany that that lead to other things? Maybe it's lying. Uh, maybe it's, you know, other things that are a part of that. There's this cover-up that needs to take place. And so this is where we begin to see, as Malachi focuses on, he begins with one sin, but he begins to say this is what the impact of that one sin is. And sort of giving us an illustration and he's doing it today at how men treated their wives and what they were doing with marriage, which is another covenant. And that covenant is a covenant with God. So we move. The sin being expressed by Malachi is what? The priest and the men of Israel married women who worshipped foreign gods. They married women who worshipped foreign gods. Now, what, what's going on there? Did he marry them because they were all just so much more attractive than their wives? Uh, no, that's not why they married them. If you understand what was going on in the exile, what was going on is that Israel was poor. There was droughts. There was, there was not much going on. They didn't have any political power. But if they married women from those foreign lands who had foreign gods, they were marrying into political influence. They were marrying into economic advantages. And so for them, this was the way to go. This was an opportunity for them to do this. And so what they were doing was they were sacrificing their relationship with the one God and now they were marrying those who had foreign gods who were bringing them into the house. And as we know throughout the Old Testament that even Solomon himself was what? Was misled and literally brought into idol worship by the foreign wives that he had married in those foreign gods. And so this is the idea that's going on here. This, this, this sort of like, this is going to be a good thing, but what did they have to do? So here's what happens now. Here comes the cluster. What did they have to do to marry these women? Well, they had to divorce the women of their youth, the women that they had covenant marriage with before God. They had to divorce these women. And they were moving away then from this having this agreement and this worship of God in their family to where they were basically moving these women out, sending them back, bringing other women in who worship foreign gods, bringing them into the household. Remember, the children would be there. They would be impacted by this. And so as they're doing this, one sin leads to the next sin of divorcing, which then leads to the following sin, which is profaning the sanctuary. Profaning the sanctuary. What was going on was they now are offering sacrifices to God knowing in their hearts that they're no longer in that one 
God frame of mind where they're worshiping God, but they have other foreign gods. They know they disobeyed God and they've been unfaithful to God. And here's what they're doing. When you see this idea of mourning and weeping and all that, they were putting on a show at the altar of sacrifice. They were putting on a show at the altar of sacrifice, like pagans before their gods. This is what they were doing. It was hypocrisy. And God could not take that. That was, that was something that was irreverent. It was not just disrespectful, but it was an abomination before God. Because not only was the temple holy, but the nation itself was made holy by God. And so they were profaning both the temple and themselves as a nation of people. I was thinking about this. I was thinking as a kid growing up, and I don't know about you guys, but um, I would go to funerals. I, I was made to go to funerals. And um, uh, these funerals were pretty much big Italian funerals. And I remember walking in as a little kid, and there'd be probably about between 10 and 15 ants, all dressed up in black, and they would be there by the coffin just weeping and wailing. They would just be weeping and wailing. It was like they can almost turn it on and turn it off. I was, I was actually uh, with Raj this weekend at CCF conference, and he said, that's exactly what my family does in India. He said, one time I was at a, a, a funeral, and we were there, and people were wailing, and then I was with my mother, and the next thing I know, she winks at me, and she goes over, and she starts wailing again. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking in the context of this, is that that's sort of what was going on. There was this wailing and mourning, this sort of show, you know, they were dramatizing it. Now, I'm not saying that my aunts weren't, their motivation might have been really good, but in this, they weren't. But, but you could just sort of get this picture of what was going on, and this was an abomination to God. This was not worship, but this was trying to appease God. This was not godly sorrow, but this is sorrow that led to death and destruction because God knew what was in the heart and it was profaning the sanctuary. And, and so that's what's going on. So you can see how it starts here with the one sin, then it just begins spreading out, all right? You begin to see how that sin cluster begins to move forward. Now I think about this, and it moves forward to where at the end he says, their garments were a covering for violence. Now, what does that really mean, that word? And I think it's interesting. If you remember the story of Boaz with Ruth, remember that he covered her with his garment, and as he did that, he claimed her as a wife to love and protect. That covering of the garment was to say, I bring you on as one I will love and protect. And so this garment that God is talking about putting on is a garment of violence because what they did was they did injustice to the wives of their youth. They broke the covenant, and that injustice was going to impact them and impact the children and impact the community. It was desecrating God. It was breaking a covenant that they had made with God. And so that's sort of this idea that was going on there with this idea of that divorce of the wives of their youth. They were breaking this covenant, and it was an injustice. The way they did this was, was just like we decided that this was going to be the best thing for us. And, and then it moves further because there's more to this, right? What's going on is that not only is that happening, 
But what God's purpose in this marriage covenant with the wife of the youth was to have children who would be raised up as children who knew the promises of God, children who knew the power of prayer, children who knew what sacrifice was and the forgiveness of sins, children who were godly offspring. The family would be for God's intention to be that witness that he intended them to be. This is how God was going to be known among the nations as the family served God together. So you can see what's just happened here. One particular movement forward, which could have been justified and rationalized because of their situation, has now been a cluster of sin that has impacted lives all over the place. We don't even know how many generations that would impact. And this is what Malachi is getting at, this breaking of covenant, this faithlessness, this idea that the marriage covenant, again, is a covenant that not just has man and wife, but has God in it with them. And there's this powerful thing going on, but there's a bigger story in this. See, and sometimes we sort of get stuck in that little story. There's a bigger story in this because Israel is the bride of God. Israel is the wife of God. If you read Ezekiel 16, it tells us that he took Israel from the rubbish heap, a dying child, and adorned Israel as a wife with all that he could give her, and then Israel became that which all the nations saw and worshipped. And it's the same idea that he's speaking about. So Exodus 34 has this to say. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. Hallelujah. It's powerful. As we live in covenant with our covenant God, so here he just breaks it down again. He's been talking about all these ways the people are faithless. And here he's talking about the men. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes people have used this particular passage of Scripture to like, have a whole practical theology on divorce and remarriage. And this has nothing to do with divorce and remarriage. This has all to do with men who are abusing the covenant and who are abusing the wives of that covenant because they were creating injustice in what they were doing for their own purposes. Now, there is a place for all of that, but this is not that place. But it is about this idea, how are we treating those that we have been called to love? And I think this is where it leads to right now. This is where it's leading to. Because there was here an outward form of devotion and worship. But they weren't following the Lord with their personal life. And it was a shame and a disgrace. I think that's the one of the messages for us here. What is our life like before God? 
Do we come on a Sunday morning and are we putting on a show? And what does the rest of our life reflect? How are we treating the people in our lives? How are we treating our husbands and our wives? How are we treating them? Are we treating them with dignity and respect? Are we loving them in the same way that the covenantal love of the Father loves us? Or do we have idols and desires in our life like the men did, and we can rationalize why I don't have to spend time? Because I want to have security down the road. Little do I know what might happen tomorrow, but I've made an idol of financial security that's moving me away from treating those I love in a way that I should. Or maybe it's a career goal, or maybe it's something that I like to do as a hobby. But there's all kinds of things that become idols in our lives that then we can rationalize why we will not treat those in our lives that we are called to love in a way that they should be loved. And so where are we this morning right now? We're going to be approaching the communion table in a little bit. Where are we? What's going on in our hearts and our lives? And this is God speaking to us right now, saying, don't put on a show. And if you are, you need to come. I was thinking about that. How are we doing? Let's look at this. If you're a parent, how are we doing raising our children? Are we raising them in a godly way? Are we, are we being in, so impacted by the culture that it's overwhelming us in our ability to parent? We're, we've become fearful in the things that we think are right. We're compromising because the culture has come upon us. But yet God has called us to raise godly children. What does that look like? Are we asking the question? Are we praying about it? Are we talking together about it? If you're a single person here today, what kind of decisions are you making as you pursue relationships? Who are you pursuing relationships with? Are you pursuing relationships with people who have the same faith that you do? Are you pursuing it outside of that and thinking about what, what might that impact in my life and in my relationships? See, these are the things that we see in this particular context here, this looking and thinking through this. And if you're like me, as I was looking at this and was convicted, Lord, certainly, I am not a man who is able to be able to fulfill this covenant. I fail. I can look back and say, oh, Lord, with regret, I can look back and say, I fail with my children, or I fail with my wife, or I'm failing now. Or, and, and we can get overwhelmed by that. And that's why I want to end with what the bigger picture of this is. Because remember what we talked about very early on in the first sermon is that all of the Old Testament, as Jesus said in Luke 24, points to Jesus. And this points to Jesus too. Because in this overriding context, of us being the bride of Christ and being unfaithful and him showing us how there was unfaithfulness in the wedding covenant, we then go to something marvelous because we have a faithful bridegroom and his bride. We have Jesus, the bridegroom. Listen to what it says in Matthew 9, 15. And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He calls himself the bridegroom. And he's speaking to the people there saying, I am here. As a matter of fact, in John 14, when he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, he's speaking bridegroom language uh, in, in this sort of the Israel context because the bridegroom was to go get a place for the bride. And what he has done is he has purchased a place for us by his blood. He has remained faithful to the covenant of love, to the promise in Genesis, which flows through all of the Old Testament and become yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is the faithful bridegroom to us, our his bride. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? Think about this. Now, I want to take us to our future. You got to get this. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, this is our ending. Do you see it? How faithful is Jesus as the bridegroom? He prepares us. Listen to what it says this. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wait a second. There's already righteous deeds that we are doing that are going to be known in heaven. Why? Because we have a faithful bridegroom who we can go to now when we are faithless. Do you get that? Don't mire in a self-pity party. Don't think there's no power out there. Don't believe that God is not with you because he is and he has provided a way right now. How does he do that? Well, here's what we know. We know that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he has provided forgiveness. What relationship does not need forgiveness? But if I can forgive you and you can forgive me, we start new in that relationship and we work out of that love of God for us. We can reconcile just as God reconciles us with Jesus and our relationship can grow out of that forgiveness. But there's more, right? He's opened up the throne of heaven that we can actually go to God and ask him for help. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of Jesus, the bridegroom, who is able to give us the ability not to sin against one another. Hallelujah. But he gives us the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Whoa, what would it be like if I lived that way with my wife? What would it be like if I lived that way with my children? What would it be like if we lived that way with one another? We would not be sinning against the community. We would be loving the community. And when someone stepped into this community, what would happen? We would be a witness of who Jesus Christ was and God's love. Amen? This is what 
He's doing. This is where he's calling us. This picture of the faithful bridegroom. It's this wonderful picture. We are the bride of Christ. He's preparing us to be those who actually, (laughs) how powerful it is. I love what Joe Aldridge says here. A beautiful bride. That's the key to being a witness. Brides bypass intellects and capture hearts. Tough, callous, hardened men are known to weep in their presence. Men of steel melt and their wives get misty-eyed. Ideally, a bride is the epitome of all that is right and beautiful. She is the symbol of purity, hope, purpose, trust, love, beauty, and wholeness in a world pockmarked with ugliness. The bride motif found in both the Old and New Testaments is used by God to illustrate his strategy. And kids, if you're going through your program there, his strategy for attracting people to the availability of his life-changing grace. Brothers and sisters, as we become the bride of Christ, as he works in our hearts, as our relationships are reflecting that, as our marriage relationships are reflecting that, our relationships to one another are reflecting that, our relationships to people in the world are reflecting that, we attract people to Jesus. We attract them to grace to salvation. This is a wonderful gift that God has given us. And we have the faithful bridegroom that we can go to. There's not a one of us who's not going to struggle with being faithless, but we have a bridegroom we can go to who will help us again and again and again until that day, we're at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Can you say amen to that? Does that encourage your soul this morning? Does it encourage your heart this morning? Can you see yourself as faithless and then know you have a bridegroom who's going to help you? How hopeful is the message that God gives us. I just love being able to see how Christ enters in even to this Old Testament passage. And we can know that we are engaged to the Lamb. And as we come to communion this morning, I I just think about that. I'm going to ask the team to come up. As we come to communion this morning, how appropriate is us to think about this wonderful gift? This is a picture of the Lamb who was slain for us. This is a picture of the one who is the bridegroom. This communion... Is, is a picture of this faithful covenant love that God has that started in the garden as we looked at in our children's story when there was the first breaking of the covenant with God to Christ's coming and all those promises being yes and amen because when Jesus came, he came and he literally became a curse for us He literally, in his faithfulness, went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that when we come, all our unfaithfulness is put on Jesus and God takes that and forgives Jesus, forgives us, not Jesus, forgives us. And out of that forgiveness, when we come to Christ, we now are forgiven and reconciled and become adopted sons and daughters. And we move towards now being people who are the bride of Christ that he is faithful to until he brings us into glory. This table speaks about this wonderful love 
that is ours in Christ. It says, come even now with your hard hearts. Come with your faithlessness. Come with your rebellion. Bring them to God right now. Know this forgiveness. Know now that not only are you forgiven, but as a child you can walk and take this meal of faith and have your soul strengthened. It's this wonderful gift that he gives us. And it doesn't end there, but there's this promise that when he comes back again, he's going to take us home. We are the bride that will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a beautiful picture that he gives us. That's how we come to the communion table. So I'm going to ask you now to take a few moments before the Lord. You need to bring your heart this morning. Bring your heart. Know his love. Know his forgiveness. I do want to say to you this morning, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Do not let Satan keep you from this table this morning because you think there's a sin in your life that God can't forgive. God says that he forgives every sin that we repent of. You need to know that this morning. I don't care if it's an addiction, if it's a pattern sin, you bring it to the cross of Christ and he forgives you and you can come to this meal. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you don't know him as the faithful bridegroom, this is your time to come. He's speaking to you right now. He's saying, come to me, humble your heart. I'm at the door of your heart right now. Let my love enter in. No forgiveness for the rebellion of your own heart. That's what God's calling you to do today.